Welcome back to Equity For Real by Make Green Go. I'm your host, Rwanda Knox, bringing you the realest podcast by the realest people in the cannabis industry. Today, we have a special guest, Rashanya Kehoe. She is our case manager for the equity programs we serve. So let's get into it. All right. Okay, Rashanya, you ready? Yes. All right. So we're going to talk about the um, Equity Made panel that we did earlier this month in October. And we invited um, the city of Oakland and we had uh, all the top retailers in Oakland and beyond um, in Oakland, California. And we primarily like focused on Oakland um, retailers because the city of Oakland had a, wanted to know what was the problem or issues or challenges that um, have been faced and how can we address them in getting equity made products on the shelf. So we had that, so we had a webinar um, and then out of that came a lot of good Q&A questions that we're going to go over and just kind of, you know, recapture, but summarize the high points of what what was discussed on the webinar. And Rashanya is here. She is my, my co-host and uh, guest on the podcast today. So tell everybody, hi, Rashanya. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> and so, uh, and she was also um, on the webinar as well. So I feel like uh, you know, me and you can have a good dialogue for the audience about like what to, uh, the main, you know, takeaway things that they should understand to improve their, to position themselves better um, to get their product on the shelf. Absolutely. Yep. Cool. So, all right. So we're just going to dive right into um, some of the Q and A that we saved and set aside and then I'll play a couple of snippets from the webinar itself. So like question, um, so I'll start with the first question was, how are retailers looking at purchasing price in comparison to brand recognition? I have a product that is has amazing quality, but it needs to be sold to retailers at $32 an eighth to make sense. And so the question is, are retailers going strictly off of quality or will they also be looking at the fact that it's a new uh, new product? So, well, I think this person says new product, but what they mean is a new brand because obviously um, selling apes is um, something that is not a new product on the shelf. So I was going to play what, e, uh, what Darius from E said about, about that. So I'm a, um, play that now let me know mm -hmm. if you can hear it and then you add that on to even for the consumer that is conscious about wanting to specifically buy social equity you're still competing then amongst a larger category so you need to be able to differentiate right like what is it do you, does your are your pre-rolls rolled in keef oh you know is there special sauce in them it you know do you have a good um do you have a good um, uh, 
promoter, like is there a name attached to your product that people will be more attracted to? Uh, or are you are you offering the only outdoor grown social equity flower? Right? Like you gotta find your own specific niche because right now if I have one more person come to me with Man, our flower. Why should why you should buy our flower? It's the best. It's the best flower. It's the the diamond encrusted and yada yada yadas. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard this pitch like 80 million times before. I just don't have any space for more flower. I don't have any more space for more pre roll. All right, so I'm gonna pause that right there. Did you hear that? Okay. Yes, that was perfect. Okay, so yeah, so so. What did you, I mean, so he's basically saying right there that um, you're competing against not just other equity brands that also have a lot of flour on the shelf, but, or may have flour on the shelf, but other larger brands that have flour on the shelf. So um, yes, you have a new product to you, but is it a new product to them? Right. And the fact that the market's already pretty much saturated with flour. Um, whether it be pre-rolls or eighths. Um, so. Right. So go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Your brand definitely has to stand out. And one of the issues, you know, is, uh, packaging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Keep going. Yeah. One of the issues is packaging. Um, even when we spoke, to um, one of the individuals who's, who does the buying at high times. He said he wants to see something in more than a person just putting a sticker on a pack. <laughs> you know, right. uh, someone that's taking pride in, in actually putting together, diligently putting together a, a product for presentation. And even Josh Chase brought up on the, on the, um, the call that we were on, you know, it takes about a year to properly develop your pack, your packaging. Um, anywhere from four to six months to develop an idea. And then like another overseas, you know, another five to six months to actually receive the package. But this, so this is what I don't get. I don't understand why, and maybe some distributors have figured this out. Well, distributors do white label. They Distributors white label um, other people's products all the time and put it in packaging. But what I don't understand, Rashanya, is why doesn't a distributor create a uniform equity um, brand, like a, a, not a generic brand, but one that um, is just, is specifically an equity like brand and do all the packaging and labeling and then buy equity products made from equity cultivators and equity manufacturers and put that product into that packaging and and then distribute it as an equity, like a like sort of like a collective equity brand that's like purely equity. And it's not about their brand, it's more about the equity brand as a standalone. Like I don't because I've been playing with this idea of of what it would take to just be more cooperative, have a more cooperative approach to the packaging and labeling and the branding of equity products. Right. And, and yeah, go ahead. I think a big issue is, well, even with the social equity distributors, there are some out there uh, willing and able to social equity operators. 
Um, one of the issues is, like you said, they're, a lot of distributors are pushing their own brands, right? Uh, their, their house brands. And if they're focused on their house brands, then it's pretty apparent that they don't, they can care less about an equity operator's brand. That's right. And that's but, what you, go ahead. But I think it would make sense if you're a distributor, you're already there and you have two strong brands, you know, um, the equity operator brand. So to piggyback off of what you're saying, the equity opera, uh, operator's brand, that's everything's compliant with packaging and everything. And there's nice packaging along with their house brand. The consumers just see two great brands. They're not seeing them as, you know, competitors. And I think sometimes the distributors might actually see some of the equity operators as competition. Well, that, well, I think what happens is, Rashanya, the way that plays out is you, if they got their own house brand and then they have this equity brand and they're both selling pre-rolls, for example, let's just go with what Ease was saying, what Darius from Ease was saying, and they're both selling pre-rolls, then the distributor or the retailer, most likely the distributor though, <laughs> is saying, well, I got, you know, they're, they're competing essentially amongst each other. So at that point. Um, and the retailer already has a full shelf of pre-rolls. So um, it's less likely, it's going to be less likely that number one, that distributor is pushing your pre-roll over theirs, or it's less likely that that retailer wants another pre-roll on the shelf when they have so many. So Absolutely. The, right. So you got to be strategic. So you got to think about um, what, uh, well, number one, if you have a distributor, you need to understand what that distributor is selling. I definitely agree with that. And if, and then also, if you are trying to have a relationship with the retailer, you need to understand what the retailer is selling, right? Because you need to look at their menu and see what they already have before and how much they're charging before you even approach them. Because I think what's happening is based upon the conversation we had on the webinar with the retailers is a, a lot of brands are, are approaching the retailers um, to without really doing their homework on what the, uh, on what the retailers um, already have and what they might need because, so anyway, we're going to get into that more and more a little bit more right i definitely agree with you with there, uh, that lawanda because you know due diligence is, is, is a process in any type of platform and even more extensive when it comes to the cannabis world yeah that's right and right and so right so they're going to the so they're going to the retailer without knowing you know already kind of idea of what they're selling because you can get a lot of information just from the bud tender or on the menu online menu um, right or actually just walking stuff. into the store yourself <laughs> yeah the shop prior to yeah oh sorry no yeah yes. so then yeah walking into the store yourself prior to trying to make the sale of your product oh like, yeah that, that prior to that prior yeah, to scout product. it out don't, don't go in there with the product that you're trying to sample and that's your first time ever really paying attention to what they got on their menu. Yes. 
Um, like you, and then, yeah, so I think we've made that point clear. So then another question was, what about products known in the black market that are now turning to the white market? Well, first of all, we no longer call it the black market. I've never even heard of the white market, actually. But Me either. We, def- <laughs> we definitely don't call it the black market anymore. It's called, we call it the underground market. Um, and then if you mean the white market as the regulated market, um, well, that's what we, that's how we refer to, uh, legal cannabis is the, you know, the regulated market. So it's the underground market versus like the regulated market. And right. so, so the question is, what about products known in the underground market that are now turning to, uh, the regulated market? Well, like, I mean, good for them, right? Cause the, what does that mean? So the way to do that, number one, um, I say good for them because that means that they've realized that uh, the long game is in the regulated market. Uh, it is. It, yeah, like that, that the over time is going to be harder and harder to operate um, underground, even though most of sales and in, in underground market is very um, appealing because, you know, they don't have to pay the taxes and they don't have to, you know, go all they don't have to do all of the uh, red tape, but and but they always watch in behind their back. You know, there's always that opportunity that their livelihood is um, at risk. You know, their freedom is at risk for doing it illegally. Um, there's benefits to being in the regulated market now, to getting into the regulated market now, and st- and, and and having some staying power because. The, because getting a license over time gets harder. Well, yeah, but that's in, yeah, that makes sense. It's best to get in at ground zero or as soon as possible, like thereafter. But another thing um, with the underground market, like as you say, the livelihood and then then potentially risking um, imprisonment. The uh, to a third is their lives. I mean. It's, it's some grimy individuals in the underground market. And then what's what access and how many strains could you possibly have access to? How many products could you possibly have access to in the underground market? So if you're in the regulated market, there is such so more so much more offered there as far as the the networking possibilities and what people offer as far as the different types of, you know, tinctures and edibles and the ideas and things that you can learn and it's like it's a whole educational process so it's like why wouldn't a person want to grow and do more as far as being a part of the regulated market it's, it just makes more sense to me mm-hmm. yeah thank you for yeah that was a good point that you pointed out um okay so here's the next question most equity brands don't have the resources to market and use social media what percentage of marketing should retailers assume to help visibility of a less known equity brand? Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't assume anything that, that the retailers are going to do anything. Right? <laughs> right. Because, because essentially the, the, the retailers are your customers. If you're a brand, then the retailer is your customer. Unless you are a micro business and you have a delivery or dispensary where you're selling directly your brand directly to the customer, the end customer, then if you're a brand, 
then your customer is the retailer. So I wouldn't assume that they're going to take the responsibility of marketing your your brand. Um, it's actually quite in the reverse. The reason why uh, most brands, or excuse me, what a lot of retailers pick a brand is because of what traffic they're going to drive to them, to their store. Absolutely. Um, that's why one of the things that uh, they pointed out, some of the uh, operators and brands, they've gone as far as showing up and um, running promos and being in the store, pushing their own product or uh, even with social media, which you have to be careful with sending out like blasts, like, Hey, you know, my product is here, go in there. So, and that's what, that's what retailers care, care about good traffic in the door. So you get someone in the door looking for a specific product it's, it's extremely likely they're going to look around and purchase more than just that one product. That's right. Because they're interested in the whole transaction. What makes up that whole cart? Like when you go to the grocery store, um, you might be going for a, to buy some milk, but before you get to that milk, which is always in the back, <laughs> right? always in the back of the store before you even, which is on purpose, um, before you can get to that milk, guess what? You got to go through the snack aisle or some aisle where there's, oh, guess what? These other items that they want you to put in your cart before you even get to the milk, okay? So then you get your milk, you got five or six other items in your cart, and then you make it to the counter. When you get to the counter, they got impulse buying, right. buying items, you know, the last minute things on the uh, on the edge, don't they call it a gondola? Um, the, how they merchandise on the, on the end cap of the aisle, that's on purpose so that you then put some of those deals, right? Those promos that they have into your cart. So now by the time you at the register, which also has more product, uh, you have now like 12 items in your cart, but you went to go get what? A bottle, a, a, a gallon of milk. That's on purpose. Oh, very intentional. Um, and that's, that's a marketing in itself. Right. <laughs> and people, and, and, what's, and what makes it so successful is people don't even realize it's happening. That's right. <laughs> um, people, yeah, this, right. We, they don't even realize it's happening, um, but the retailer, but it's intentional for the retailer. They, they pick and choose where the product is placed on purpose which shelf is placed on purpose, how much of it they carry. And so a lot, all of these things are, are also translated into the cannabis industry as well. So uh, they, so your product really needs to stand out or have a certain amount of following that's gonna drive traffic um, to buy the product. Cause the last thing a retailer wants is product sitting on the shelf that's no, that nobody's buying. Because it's Cause it wasted space. space. Right. Yeah, wasted space. And where they can have something. Because the retailers are all about making money. And they don't care where they get the money from. <laughs> they don't care if it's from uh, a hundred. If you have a 100 equity uh, brands out there that are profitable, they're, they want to carry 100 of them. So I don't think it's like, oh, well, we just totally against equity. They want product that will move. They want products that will get people in their doors and get to shopping. 
<laughs> right basically um that's how you have to look at it and then okay so here's another question will ease open the momentum program this year yes uh they have just opened their uh momentum program and i will drop the link of the application that's due on december 21st 2021 i'll put the link to that application in the um details of the podcast but yes, and, and for, for those of you who don't know what the, the Momentum program is, um, Ease started a program about, this is the third year, where they select 10 um, equity, actually they're not all equity, but most of them are, um, people, cannabis brands that have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs, and they give them a, a $50,000 grant and 12 weeks of training with experts, marketing, legal, um, all, all sort of uh, assistance from their uh, in-house in um, experts. They do the mentoring for about 12 weeks. And then out, out of what comes out of that is um, an opportunity for the winner to pitch to their investment community, investor community, and also have the um, opportunity to have their brand, um, excuse me, have their brand carried on the Ease menu which by itself is um, worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. right. And so, so that's what the Ease Momentum Program is. And it's, you know, one of its kind. It's, um, which is why we had uh, Darius Kemp from Ease um, speak on the panel that we had that we're talking about right now. So yes, they are going to, um, they're going to do it this year. I'm sure that's great news for a lot of folks. And that was a that was an excellent question, actually. Right. <laughs> Even more so because some of the oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm saying it's timely because the application just opened up. Oh yeah, that's that's awesome. And a lot of the newcomers, I'm sure, have not even uh heard of the Ease Momentum program. Right. That's right. Um so let's see, what about price points? How do you decide on that? How do you meet pricing with respect to quality? Uh, meaning accepting price points distros come with, although they may be a new brand. So I think what they're getting at is, so, uh, so we, when we asked this question during the, during the webinar, uh, they were saying that they, they typically, when they buy the product from the distributor at wholesale, they typically mark it up two to three times as much. And, right. Right. And so um, so if they're going to mark it up two to three times as much as they bought it for from the distributor, then the math that they're doing is where um, where is that price point going to fall? Because you can because if they if the cost is high, then uh, they could then the price you could be priced out of the market. The you know, the, the price that the customer will come in and buy could be so high that you're priced out of the market because there's other competitors that are charging a lot less for similar uh, quality. For similar yeah, and, they, and, you know, um, Darius brought up a good point when he was saying, you know, you also need to know, you know, know what the consumers want. So if you're bringing an item that's overpriced and folks may not necessarily want it, then that's a problem. 
Well, yeah, that there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's what absolutely is what the customers want. And I would, I think, thank you for bringing that up. Cause that was one of the main things that he, uh, that came out of that webinar, um, was actually, I, you know, I think I have that part of the recording is what's next. Let me see if I can play a little bit of it to capture what he said. Also look at the menu and see what is on there, right? Oh, always. Always, so, so look what's on there and uh, see what everybody else is offering and how can you fill uh, a, a, another need. And the real and the good thing that we provide at Ease, I think, that is really good for the industry as a whole, is that our state of cannabis report that we do annually, it actually does break down. We break down the demographics of who's buying what, when, where, and how. Where is so we we put up San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, and we'll tell you in, in the state of cannabis report, all right, women. You know, women over the age of 30 seem to be really focusing in on what product right now. Okay, so I was going to stop right there. I had paused for a minute and then I just let it play a little bit more. So, yeah, so basically what he's saying is that you can go on Ease's website, find this report, which we'll actually put the link also in the podcast for that report and read about what customers want and what they're buying and then you can compare that to what the the retailer already has on their shelf and sort of figure out do you have a, a niche that will fit you know that that can fill in some of the gaps so absolutely right so so maybe yeah so maybe they're not interested in buying a bunch of uh, pre-rolls but if you're a manufacturer can you make um, chocolate Yes. And that's, that's, and he specifically pointed that out. Like, you know, the market sat just oversaturated with flour and, you know, people do like good flour, but it's, it's like he said, it's really important to know your consumer because the average California consumer is extremely price conscious and brands need to stay competitive and value qualified um, consumer recognition as far as like the social media platforms. And then some of the, you know, relationships they can build as far as networking with you know the cultivators and other you know as far as manufacturers and when we bring up white labeling again so there's a possibility for social equity operators uh to be successful it's just trying to figure out like you said the niche well and i think that california they're they're savvy i think the customers uh, the cannabis consumers in california are are savvy buyers so they i think they are price conscious to the uh, tone the tune where they know they not to say that they won't pay more for a product but they won't pay more for a product that they can get the same or similar of at a lesser price right because right cuz they know their brands they know they um you know, they, they tend to know what they want to buy because we're becoming a more mature market. California is becoming a more mature market. So, so they, they're, they're starting to, the consumers is doing their own homework and they're researching their own brands uh, or they're talking to the bud tender a lot. You know, they're, they're speaking to the bud tender to find out what's new. And that's um, another area where you can, establish a relationship with the local bud tender at your favorite dispensary to find out what do they like or what do they see the trends are that customers are coming in for 
but they're always out of. Absolutely. The butt tenders are definitely the, fr- the front line of the cannabis industry. They deal with the customers um, day in and day out. And then uh, for a full-time butt tender, and depending on how long they've been doing it, they might have a lot of information to offer someone that's trying to get their brands into a retailer. Yep. And then uh, I wish I could find that clip where he talks about the chocolate. I think it might be next. But basically, he says that he that they, um, you know, he, they may not be interested in flour right now, but they would be interested in buying chocolate right now that they couldn't find chocolate. And if you think of the reason why I bring this up is because in California, we have like some of the especially. Yeah. In California, we have like some of the finest chocolate chocolatiers we got artisan chocolates we got you know uh ghirardelli we got mm-hmm. uh, we got it all ricuti i mean if you want to go high end you want to go low end we got a lot of chocolate makers like so me thinking creatively i'm like well what would it take if i was a manufacturer i'm not gonna go and try to figure out how to be i'm not gonna try to figure out overnight how to become a chocolatier but what i might do <laughs> Rashawn, yeah, I, what I might do is go speak to the chocolatier, buy their their ingredient, their chocolate as an ingredient in bulk, right? And work with them even to, to understand like, well, how do I melt this down? And then I would infuse, and I know you talk, you know what I'm talking about. I'm speaking your language, Rashawn. And I would <laughs> infuse the cannabis into the already made chocolate that I'm going to melt down and then just put it in a mold, some sort of, you know, mold. And um, there you go. Chocolate and um, cannabis infused chocolate um, right there. <laughs> right. With no, <laughs> and you didn't need it. You didn't need, you don't need no kitchen. You don't need a, if you're a manufacturing facility, you don't need a, uh, you know, a kitchen for that. You, like you could, you could do that on a hot plate. I about to say that's a hot plate process. And they have so many different ways to cook things up nowadays to make it convenient for folks that typically don't like cooking. It's ridiculous. Right. But 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 that becomes an ingredient ingredient. Um, and now you can expand your 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 offering that way. Um, so I just thought that that was a, a good example. OK, let me see if there's another good question in here. Okay, do you have any suggestions for a equity popular brand in underground market in the underground market trying to transition to the legal market? Well, if you so if you're equity, you wouldn't be you shouldn't be popular underground if you're an equity because that means that you are in the you've gotten the you know a permit. Uh, but if you're so if you're a pop so let, so if you're a popular brand underground and you're trying to transition to the legal market, good for you, because you probably already have, like I said, a following on social media. You're right. Already, you already done the hard part. People are already looking for you if you're a pop. So really, what I would do is, and uh, to be honest with you, instead of trying to go get necessarily a permit or license on my own, I'd be trying to connect with some licensed equity, uh, some already licensed equity businesses who don't have product, right? They don't have product. They're not a popular brand. They, they have a license. They have the facility, which you need to legally operate in this industry, the license in the facility. So they, all, they already have all that, but what they don't have is what you have, 
the the following the and the actual the popular product and the brand to really set it off. So there's a Rashani, there's a lot of that. I mean, think about it. What if what if we what if we were able to bridge the gap between these popular underground brands and then these uh, equity operators that don't have any product? That would be huge. <laughs> um, especially since we have people with micro businesses and manufacturing licenses that aren't even using their licenses. Um, and what and, do you mean? Uh, what do you mean by they're not using? I know what you mean by they're not using their licenses. But what can you can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, like prime example, um, you have a micro business. They have delivery, distribution, and manufacturing. And they're doing absolutely nothing with their manufacturing license. If you have someone in the underground market with a popular brand, already penetrated the community and they know it. So that means they're showing up at, at pop-ups, you know, the, the underground pop and have a following the, that would be beneficial for both parties at hand. This manufacturer, this, this micro business who has this manufacturing license that they're not utilizing they can they can have a person use their license, get a percentage of whatever uh, you know that, and those logistics can be worked out. But get a percentage of for them to use their license, and then this person who's popular underground now can go to the regulated market and still have that same following, and 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 even spread a broad get a broader uh, consumer. Just to be clear, we are not saying take illegal product and sell it with a license. That's not what we're saying. Actually, that would be really bad because of track and trace measures and track and trace systems like metric. Uh, people get caught trying to do that. It doesn't work. No, Rashanya, can you explain and summarize, um, try to recapture what you mean by licensed operators collaborating with underground brands yes so mm -hmm. the manufacturer that the person that has that manufacturing license that's not utilizing their license they actually need that underground brand that's popular um reason why is if you have a license that's just sitting dormant i mean what's the point of having it it would be beneficial for, for both parties um Clearly, the person that the the underground in the underground market, they have different type of business savvy. Um, the tenacity where they push through, they're out there at the the pop ups because there's a lot. There's weekly underground pop ups, um, and I'm pretty sure, and I know for a fact, Oakland, Richmond, San Francisco, and even Sacramento have them on a weekly basis. So if you have these underground equity, I mean, underground popular brands that are already out there doing it, these, these regulated folks need them and they need to keep and, you know, stop cutting off their noses to fight their face. And, and those connections need to be made because it'll be beneficial for everybody. As far as the popular brand, they'll be able to get regulated. They'll still have their initial... Um, consumers, but they'll also be able to expand to a much broader consumer, um, be able to penetrate and get into the retailers 
they've already done that. They have no problem with going out there talking to folks and pushing their brands. That's and what clearly, the retailers are asking for. And, and Rashani, clearly they don't know how to do something, right? If they're, they got the savvy, they got that street savvy and they got that, you know, the product and they know how to get out there and, 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 and hustle and do the sales and everything. But they obviously missing that critical piece of how do you, you know, it, it also takes a special skill to sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to apply for this. Um, this permit and this license, okay, I'm going to find a location, okay, or I'm going to get incubated, or I'm going to figure out how to pay these bills every month. Because if you're sitting on a dormant license in a facility, whether you're being incubated or not, you got expenses. Absolutely. It is costing you money. It is costing you money every day that you turn on them lights and you walk in there and ain't nothing happening. And your time is ticking Time is ticking like it is on this clock right now. Time is ticking where the longer you sit on that license and you're not doing anything with it, the the more money it's going to cost because you got to you got to renew the license every year in order to keep it up, you know, to keep it in good standing. So you renewing this license every year. You sitting on this location, sitting in this location, and you're not doing nothing with it. So basically, yeah, the the bridge we got to bridge the gap between the popular brands that's on the underground market and these licensed businesses that's just sitting dormant. Right. And then another plus about the underground uh, manufacturer is now they would have insurance. At any given moment, you can, you know, get something to somebody and they might say, oh, you, you know, this wasn't right or whatever the case may be. Regulated, you're insured. Everything's on the up and up. Less risk, less liability. It's nothing but a win for both parties involved. Um, and yeah, the, it's go ahead. It's, yeah, and the sooner we or figure out a, a way to bridge those gaps or get the right people together, because you know relationships are all always about the the right mesh. Uh, you mesh those the right two right few individuals together to make that happen. It they would be some forces to be reckoned with. It, this reminds me of the fourth principle of Kwanzaa, cooperative economics, Ujamaa, cooperative economics, which means to build our own businesses, control the economics of our own community, and share in all its works and wealth. So in all its works and wealth. So how are we going to do that if we're, if we're separating the regulated um, license holders from these popular underground brands. No, if we want this to work, we have to have cooperative economics and figure out a way that we can partner and do this together. Right. So we have a, so we have a responsibility to, to make that happen. Okay, so here it goes. I think I had like two more questions um, before we end the podcast. So when you, when you said product amount is important, how much product availability is ideal? Um, that's the question from the equity person. So it depends on who you're speaking to. It, it, depend, and it depends on a lot of different variables, but like if you're speaking to ease versus if you're speaking to a single like mom and pop type of dispensary, the uh, answer is, is going to be different, but typically, and then it's their buying pattern too, right? So if they typically like to buy every two weeks, then you want to make sure that you're, um, that they're doing their reorders just in time 
for them not to run out of stock, but not to have too much product on their shelf at one time. So um, basically, I think that goes back to having that communication and relationship with starting out small with a, a local dispensary. And you know what, to be honest with you, even before you had that conversation with the local dispensary, talk to some of these deliveries. Yeah, that's true. There's more deliveries than there are retail uh, dis brick and mortar dispensaries. Yeah, and they definitely know what consumers want. <laughs> they and they're more more likely than not to tell you. They're more likely. See, everybody. I mean, a lot of folks is complaining. Well, I can't get on the shelf. I can't get a call back from the the dispensaries. I can't can't get this. I can't get that from the dispensaries. And I get that. I mean, I think that local at the local level, this, the storefronts have a responsibility to carry and make visible these smaller um, brands. But I think it's a missed opportunity not to um, also pursue the deliveries because there's more of them and they have a lot of customers too. Yeah, and a lot of the delivery folks are, they have, and it's a broader market. You know, you have folks that's a delivery, they're going all over. So, that, like, that's why, right. Yeah, they got more reach. And yeah, they, why? And a lot of them have good relationships with their customers having, you know, the delivery. Because the, the delivery is really more, um, I think, uh, in my opinion, I think that delivery the delivery um, drivers are more connected to the community than some of the re some of the storefront retailers are. And I, I definitely that, agree. Right, because they usually serve the community that they're from a lot of times. And they, um, they usually it's the, they're delivering to someone's home, right? Which is more intimate. And um, it's usually the repeat customers, a lot of repeat business. So, so I think that the, I think that the relationship between that delivery, um, bud tender is more, is more intimate than the relationship between the bud tender and the customer that comes in the store. True. Absolutely. So I think, so, so I think establishing that relationships with the delivery bud tenders to me is even more essential if you're trying to start out. Um, than it is with that uh, bud tender in the in the store, in my opinion. Um, but okay, so here's the last question. Or actually, no, this is uh, no, th this is a, a shout out that uh, Daniel and John from Dolo uh, they wanted to shout out and thank Hillary for being the first Oakland dispensary um, continuing to support the Oakland Equity brand. Um, and I, but listen, I believe they were called Lily Hill. I believe their dispensary is oh Ivy Hill. Ivy Hill, thank you. Ivy uh, yeah, Hill. Ivy Hill Cannabis. Yep. Yeah, Ivy Hill. Hillary O'Brien. Yes, and so they wanted so Dolo wanted to shout give a shout out shout out to them for continuing to support their equity brand. Um, let's see here. So they so then the question I had was do other retailers other than Ease have a plan to c connect and find equity brands? Um, well, based upon the silence in the room from the other um, retailers that were on the call, I'm gonna say no. Right. 
so, unfortunately, as of right now. But yeah, um, um, Dar- Darius was extremely vocal, and and Hillary gave some great insight as well. Um, she's already she and she dropped her information. Um, in the any reservations, like reach out to me, and even said like check in with your local your local dispensaries, um, have conversations with them, talk to the bartenders. Uh, what else did Hillary give insight for? Oh, yes. as far as, you know, following up with people for their orders. Because she's, she even said, if you come to Ivy Hill Cannabis, more than likely I'm the person that you're going to be dealing with when it comes to you pushing, putting your product in here. And she's the general manager. So no, you're not going to get that at other places. But at the end of the day, so cannabis is a local a local um dispensary. And she said you she said you will get an appointment to demo your product, but you may but we may not it's not a guarantee that we're gonna carry your product. And I think that's another thing, like um when be care be uh responsible with people's time, right? And uh and your time. Um because if you just because you have the link in access to someone who can buy a product or brand doesn't mean that it is the right time for you to execute on contacting them yet. Make sure you have compliant samples that are in, in metric um, and have your pitch, have your pitch ready. Even if you have something um, typed up or, you know, make sure you leave your mark. And have a, have the ability to stand out because you're not approaching them. And like Darius mentioned, everybody says that their product is the best. Yeah, of course you're gonna say that, <laughs> but give them a reason to believe you. Walk the walk, don't talk the talk. Right. And okay, so here's the last the last um, question. In the Q&A was, how will the city of Oakland ensure equity products are sold at the retail locations? Um, so number one, I think if we only rely on what the, if we, if I know where this is getting at, right? This was a popular response in the survey from equity applicants and it was force the, in their opinion, uh, it was force the dispensaries and, and have the city hold the dispensary is like all of them accountable um, for buying, you know, X percentage of equity products and brands um, and tie it to their license. And basically, you know, if they don't buy our products, then they shouldn't have a license. Um, was in, was, was that your um, takeaway from uh, some of the responses? LaWanda, that absolutely was my takeaway. And that's not a reality. I mean, my back is broad. I could take it. I could take it. You know, I'm the bad guy right now. That's not a reality. Um, it's not. At the end of the day, these dispensaries and, you know, that deliver, they're in this business to make money. They're in this business to make money. Yes, they hold a certain obligation as far as, um, especially the ones that offer it. They hold hold a certain obligation to the community and the social equity program is definitely a part of the community. 
Um, with that being said, the city of Oakland doesn't have, they don't have the manpower mm -mm. micromanage each nope. product on these dispensary shelves, that, you know, and say which ones are equity. Because a lot of times the dispensaries don't even know which products are equity in the dispensaries. They're right. carrying them. They don't know what products are, dis are, are equity. Um, mm -hmm. I think someone mentioned, oh, they went in there and was like, show me some equity products. And they showed them three products and none of them were equity. Right. So what are How, we going to do that? about that? About that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are we going to do about that? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that to me is a problem. Like the fact that you could go to a dispensary and ask them for equity products and what they present you may not actually be a verified or may not actually be an equity brand. It might be a minority owned, which is great, but not an equity brand. But the consumer who doesn't know the difference is trusting that dispensary to tell them or sell them an equity brand and it's not. That's right. A huge problem. <laughs> um, huge problem. So, and then, uh, you know, and then, but the last thing though is there are, there are some dispensaries that, especially in Oakland, that committed to purchasing 50%, more than 50% of their inventory from equity made brands and 81 to 100% of their inventory from equity distributors. So those are two different things. An equity made product, like from a cultivator or manufacturer and product from a distributor, which could be anyone's product, uh, but it's just, you know, sold to them by an equity distributor. So th there are stores, they haven't opened yet. Okay. So um, as of now, as of today, they, those store, those retail stores, have not opened their doors, but they have been awarded a license to, uh, there's four of them. There's four of them and their applications are on the city of Oakland's website right now. So the four new, excuse me, out of the nine that are listed, four of them made these commitments. And uh, you can see their application. You can pull it up and look at their responses and know which ones made that commitment. And they're supposed to report their the sales of that excuse me they're supposed they're supposed to report their buying of that inventory to the city on a quarterly basis and report their sales to the city on an annual basis of that commitment that they made i mean i mean what more can we do <laughs> right so like, i think it's, so i think it's going to be up to us us as in all the folks in the in the equity community number one who you know who are the look and see who the retailers are uh, how their contact information is on the application as well if it's not ask the city contact them and you know see what their plan is to buy because you don't want to wait until they open oh no right you want to you want to get in front of them now and make sure that you have something that compliant product to even sell them. And if you don't, then go like Rashani was saying, go to some of them pop-ups, holler at some of these folks that don't have a license, start working with them now to get their product uh, into the regulated market to, to, to get their, 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 
their idea, their brand into the regulated market, get ready to sell. And it's, uh, I mean, some certain parking lots in Oakland that you pull up to thinking you're going to get you a hoagie sandwich at a popular hoagie shop and you have folks coming up to you pushing like infused popcorn and cookies. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Phenomenal packaging. And if you hold up and walk up to my window while I'm trying to get me a sandwich, <laughs> but uh, and their packaging probably won't be com- it won't be compliant. All right, I, but but you, that's where but that's where the license holders come in at. You know, or at least you can find out what that what you got to do to to bring that 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 product into compliance, and that's a probably a lot easier than trying to start it all on your on on your own, if, especially Absolutely. if they already have that following. Yeah. So what I meant by the packaging, like the visual. Not ah. as far as compliance at all. No, ma'am. <laughs> gotcha. No, as far as like the visual, um, some of these, it's some, it's very talented local artists out there um, in Oakland. And I'm like, wow. So some of the packages, they, they have the foundation. Like you said, they need that regulated operator to, you know, help pull them up by their bootstraps to get, get it where it needs to be. So everyone can, make money and and, and this is everywhere but this is every hood right this, absolutely yeah yeah this is this ain't this don't just apply to oakland this is happening everywhere mm-hmm. um, right so if you have that license really think of it as an opportunity for some cooperative economics and work with your community um and don't try to do it all yourself absolutely especially cities that don't even have uh Especially those cities that don't even have social equity programs. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. Well, yeah. If you're if you're if you're licensed in um, Oakland or San Francisco or Sacramento, there's nothing to stop you from from uh, partnering with someone in another city that, like you said, doesn't have equity an equity program. Um, so really branch out. And I think that there is a lot of low hanging fruit. Um, and things that we can solve on our own without relying on the city's help or the government's help um, to do it all for us because that is not going to happen. Absolutely. Those conversations need to be had. All right, cool. Well, I think thank I thank you so much, Rashanya, for um, sharing your knowledge and, and real world experience of from working with so many equity operators and just, you know, being on this um, podcast with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Lawanda. Thank you so much for having me. Oh yeah, I'm sure. We, I'm sure we're gonna have you back. Um, and have a good day. You likewise. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye bye.